Hey, it's Andrew. Welcome to another edition of Wander. Really enjoyed the topic on this one. Uh, talking about the um, flexibility and the ever-evolving beast that is the English language and languages and what that does to our society and how it's been changed by technology and such. Uh, her name is Jane Jakes. She's an English instructor and speech instructor here in Fort McMurray. Uh, really cool lady. Uh, we had a great talk. Uh, so I'm excited to show that to you in just seconds. I also love it. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that eureka moment. Um, maybe that's too nice of a way of describing it. It's my idiot moment. That point where I realize I said something dumb or thought something dumb and my thought process has been changed. And I always hope in that Eureka moment that other people have that happen in your dumb moment. We all have dumb moments. I like to say that you never know more than you don't. Like it's impossible to know everything. And that, uh, you know, that's why the, the pursuit of knowledge is super important. And uh, definitely it's one thing I love about this podcast, my idiot moment. See if you can pick it out in this episode, because it definitely happened in this one. Maybe more than once. Maybe. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Jane Jakes is in here with me. She is an English instructor, English and speech instructor at Keanu College here in Fort McMurray. She put on a, a really great... Um, lecture the other day about how the English language is not dying and we're going to talk a little bit about that but first Jane I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself a little bit about your history where did it all begin well great thanks so much for having me here Andrew I've been teaching English at Keanu College in Fort McMurray for 30 years now I came to Fort McMurray in 1989 and started teaching here before that I taught English at Grand Prairie Regional College and before that, Grant McEwen. So I've been teaching English quite a while, and I have a master's degree in English from the University of Alberta. And so you're Alberta-born? You're from Albert Alberta originally? Alberta-born, yeah. yeah. I come from Edmonton originally, and I haven't gone very far from there. And what drew you to a love of the English language? Oh, I'd have to go way back for that. <laughs> Some of my earliest memories are being read to by my father, yeah. He loved poetry, and I remember reading Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson when I was sitting on his lap at the age of perhaps three. So that was a strong early influence for me, and I've always loved words and poetry and writing, and it just went naturally into a career in English. Fair enough. And what drew you to Fort McMurray as a town? That was, as with many women, a result of my husband's choices. Fair enough. He moved here as Chief Crown Prosecutor in 1989, and we relocated from Grand Prairie and raised our children here, and we've been very happy ever since. Well, I've, I've lived in both Edmonton, Grand Prairie, and Fort McMurray, and I've found uh, Fort McMurray to be an incredibly uh, interesting, diverse, and, and fun town to be in, but I've only been here for five years. Being here for 30 years, you must have seen an incredible amount of change in this community. Tremendous changes. When we arrived, the population was about 30,000, and now it's closer to 100,000. Yeah, and it ballooned at one point to probably, with the transient population, somewhere around 130. Now sits probably closer, for everybody that doesn't know, around, yeah, 90, maybe just over 90,000. I can't remember what the last census was. Yes. And 
definitely an incredibly diverse town uh, mm-hmm. for an oil field town um, with a diverse uh, groups of people moving in here looking for opportunities that you wouldn't get anywhere else in the world at some points uh, when the boom was going on people came from all over the place which also included the addition of multiple uh, languages plus we'd have multiple um, aboriginal languages that would have been spoken around this area too so when we talk about uh, language there's definitely uh, there's definitely a lot of options uh, ta- uh, spoken in, in this community that we have um, and that's definitely what we want to talk about today I think that one thing that we hear a lot because of technology in the last little while is that the English language is dead that we've destroyed it with text messaging and emojis and a breeze. my brother called I remember that being one <laughs> moment for me I was like uh, I was like I can't handle these abbreviations and my brother goes what do you got against a breeze, bro <laughs> And I'm going, abbreaves? We've actually abbreviated abbreviation? <laughs> Have we gone too far? Is this the breaking point? Is it all over? But Jane, you say no. It's far from all over, Andrew. It is a vibrant language that's lasted for over a thousand years because of its capability to change and grow. And it's a playful language. Things like abbreviate are never going to replace the word abbreviation, but it shows again how we can play with the forms of language and create new ways of saying things that match our current style and tone and mood. The language keeps on evolving. Or evolving is actually the wrong word because evolving suggests that we're moving towards something higher and better. And that's not the case. Any language just keeps changing. It changes because it's alive. Latin doesn't change anymore. Latin has been dead for hundreds of years, but English keeps changing. Is that what makes a language dead, is that there's no change in it anymore? Yeah, a language dies when people are no longer speaking it as their first language. And when that happens, it's fossilized, as it was when the last speaker died. Because there is still people that, you know, study Latin and... Oh, definitely. But there are no first language speakers of Latin Latin in the world anymore. And those who study Latin study it as a dead language, learning the forms as they were frozen in place in the, uh, in the ancient world. And one thing I loved about the lecture that you gave recently was uh, the examples that you gave of how words have changed in such recent history. I think that people think that English has kind of been how it's been for a while, um, but that we... Uh, the, the recent changes are just far more drastic, but really there's been fairly drastic changes to the English languages, language as long as it's existed, correct? It absolutely has. There have been some periods of rapid change, but then the, there have been uh, less apparent changes that occur constantly. Probably one of the periods of the most rapid change occurred between Uh, or with the arrival of the the Normans in 1066, when Old English had a huge infusion of French, and the English language changed from being a Germanic language to a mixture of Germanic and French words as it continues to be. So would you say that the biggest change that comes to tech uh, comes to language is it is it interactions with humans or is it technology? Historically, it's been human interaction. Technology changes language, but 
in more limited ways. It usually changes how the language is recorded and expressed rather than the forms of language itself. For instance, in the 19th century, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche started using a typewriter, and he noted that that changed the style of his writing because instead of having the long flowing sentences, he now tended to have short, sharp sentences. But many people throughout the 19th century started using the typewriter, and not all of them had that effect. So it's funny to think about, though, the typewriter had essentially the similar effect that the text message has now yes. to Nietzsche. And people would have been like, oh, look at this. The typewriter's ruining the English language. Absolutely. People have said that from, from uh, the, the start, that every new development is seen as a deterioration of the language. But somehow the language keeps on going because people keep speaking it. Has... Has how has literacy affected uh, the change in the English language? Was it more flexible when people were more illiterate, or is it more flexible now that people are more literate? That's an interesting question, and it would be hard to determine because when there was more illiteracy, we don't really know how people were speaking because we don't have the written records of that. Um, I would suggest that literacy increases the flexibility of language because people are able to speak and write, and we see different forms emerging in the two, uh, the two styles. So it, it's a hard question to determine. Would you say that literacy, um, would, there, would you agree that there would probably be a, a wider difference in the way that classes spoke? during more or less literate times? Yes, I think that's definitely the case. We see the writing from upper class people from, oh, say, the Middle Ages that's uh, fluent and articulate. And in all likelihood, people in the lower classes whose main interest was survival were not speaking in that same articulate style. Yeah, so that's why I think maybe a part of this sort of like this romanticizing of the language may have been the fact that, you know, we sort of believe that how people talked back then was how we've seen the written, but the written word doesn't necessarily reflect yeah. what the average person spoke like back yeah. then. Yeah, that's very true. My students will sometimes say to me when they read something like uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, they'll say, is this the way that people talked? And I say, well, probably not. It's a literate language. It's a language that's deliberately elaborate and balanced in the sentence structure. People probably talked much more as we talk now in, mm -hmm. in fragments, in uh, uh, abbreviated uh, speech. People want to communicate more quickly when they are talking. Yeah, because, it, I mean, when it's more uh, of a utility then, you know, like mm -hmm. I need to make this thing happen. I've got to say something to somebody in order to make it happen. You know, you're not thinking about the beautiful uh, ways that you could make sure that people fully understand the emotional impact of what you're trying to achieve. Exactly, right? exactly. And I think we can see evidence of that with the, uh, the advent of the novel in the 18th century and an attempt to reproduce dialogue in a realistic way. Mm -hmm. And people are speaking in a, a fragmented way. They're using slang. They're, especially the, the lower class or the comic characters sound very human. 
So do you think the increase in literacy has, because I, I think uh, increase in literacy, increase in technology has helped to bring the classes closer together in that sense, in that, you know, um, there's definitely, don't, I don't think there's as much of a difference in how uh, upper class and lower class would speak in this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, as, I, 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 but would you agree that it, it has helped to, to close the gap? Yes, I think absolutely. And I think that it's taken some time, but the whole advent of print changed the class structure, mm -hmm. making books available to everyone, not just to those who had enough money to buy the beautiful handmade manuscripts. So it's been a gradual process, but I think that the gap between classes has reduced to the point where in Canada, essentially, we have a close to a classless society. Mm -hmm. And we have close to full literacy, do we? Not as much as you might hope. It, the, there's still a kind of a, a stubborn, um, I don't know what the percentage is now, but I think it's probably 10 to 15 percent of illiterate people in Canada. And what is the qualification for illiterate? Not able to read sufficiently well to carry out everyday tasks. Okay. Yeah. Wow, and 10? Yeah, yeah, and I think that tends to be a combination of um, new uh, Canadians and people who missed out on schooling when they were young for one reason or another. Um, some countries have had concerted efforts to reduce illiteracy. And Canada did back in the 1970s, and then those efforts were kind of dropped. So it's probably time for another push to get rid of illiteracy. Well, I would think so, especially since, you know, we've had such a big push uh, in the last little while to bring in, uh, for, in for immigration, you know, mm -hmm. our compact on immigration. Yes. If we're going to have immigration, then we, we're going to have to have, uh, you know, literacy, because if we don't have literacy, then you're going to create a class structure again. Absolutely. Uh, and that's Absolutely. the last thing we want to do, because yeah. that's also seems to be the default on several of the people who have a problem with immigration, is that they believe that these people are going to come in and be illiterate. I think if you're going to bring people in, we have to make sure that we have a, a literacy program strong enough to ensure that they can, uh, you know, uh, contribute to the society uh, as fully as, as possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think, uh, so what do you, uh, outside of language, uh, how has technology affected communication? Like you also work with speech, but we're definitely not talking to each other as much as we used to. There's definitely a lot of text back and yeah. forth. Uh, how do you think the effect of that has been on our, on our communication and our culture? Well, the area of the culture I'm most familiar with right now is the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed a change in the 30 years that I've been teaching post-secondary. I used to walk into a classroom in the morning and students would be chatting with one another. There'd mm -hmm. be a buzz in the room. Now, most of the time when I walk into a room, dead silence. Everyone has their phone out. Everybody is communicating, but they're not communicating out loud in speech. They may well be talking to one another, but they're not talking out loud. I've been teaching a speech course at the college now for oh, probably the last six or seven years, and every year I have students who are terrified of public speaking. I think in part just because they don't talk enough. 
they, yeah. They're not used to expressing their ideas out loud. They generally write well enough, but speaking in an articulate and organized way is something that is a real challenge for a lot of people. Well, I think, too, with the public speaking, and I've done a lot of public speaking, my first public speaking started as a uh, 4-H kid ah, back yes. in the day, and mm -hmm. we had to do public speaking as part of uh, our 4-H classes. Uh, for those that don't know what 4-H is, it's similar to Boy Scouts uh, for farmers. Um, but uh, I found a lot with that, it's, it's, I call public speaking skydiving. Yes. Right? you got to pack that chute as best you possibly can, yeah. and you just jump out on that stage. And once you're jumped out on that stage... You're there, right? Yeah. There's there's no real stepping back. There's no running back into the plane, right? Yeah. You just got to go. Yeah. Um, and I had to kind of adjust my thinking that way in order to keep doing it. I had mm -hmm. to look at it as a, as a challenge. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, because, and I, and I work my day job in radio, and I see this all the time as well, a lot of people like the safety of a text message mm -hmm. yes. and they like the safety of the written word because you don't physically see the person's reaction. Yes. But there's so much that's so important about that person's reaction. That's yeah. the t style of communication. And this is where I worry is the style of communication. I know so much of our communication is not just... Uh, verbal, but also the paraverbal and sure. uh, the body language, the the context, the you know, the expression, uh, and a lot of that seems lost. Uh, so I worry more about that than I worry about the language itself. I think that the language itself is there; it's intact. We're adding new words all the time. Yeah. We're losing a few. I think it needs to be flexible. And, and mm -hmm. but there's where I see the kind of worry. Yeah, I, I think that there is some concern there, but I don't think it will ever vanish it's it's mm. hardwired it's part of who we are as human beings to talk yeah. an infant doesn't have to be taught to speak <laughs> and i think possibly the schools are going to have to increase their emphasis on speech on having students giving presentations talking in groups debating just because it has become less and less a part of what people do in their everyday lives but I think when we get out of school, we're forced to do it. Most occupations most require it. Most jobs require yeah. you to have a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with people, yeah. whether you're in the oil field and you got to get you know the other person to go check. I don't know what they do in the oil field. A gauge or widget? Does that work? <laughs> um, or I, I mean, I have probably 20 meetings face-to-face -face with people a week in my yeah. day job. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was also, you know, pre-text messaging. My first phone didn't come till I was 22 years yeah. old. Yeah. Um, so I had to talk to people and I didn't like it. Yeah. I never really enjoyed it until yeah. later on. Um, so uh, yeah, that's where my biggest concern comes in. And when it comes to our communication is that, and I, I, and to know that you're seeing that type of struggle in the speech classes. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of our everyday lives can be arranged so that we never have to speak to anybody. We don't need to talk to a teller at the bank or a cashier in the grocery store. We can just do everything automated. We can order anything we want online. It's crazy. More than ever. Skip yeah. the dishes. You can skip the dishes, yes. your food, every meal. You can now, I've got friends who now get their groceries brought to their car. Sure. The amount of 
communication yeah. you have to have there is almost zero. That's right. They've removed, one thing I love about the skip the dishes and find really interesting is they've removed even the tipping part. Uh, that awkwardness of giving them that whatever yes. tip that you've decided. Yeah. They've removed that. You do that on the app before you even receive your food. Yeah. Which to me is the backwards of the whole process <laughs> because my tip should be influenced by how quickly I got my food, what shape it comes in, you know. Sure. Um, but they've removed that. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people enjoy that because you don't have to go through that awkward interaction. Sure. Yeah. The modern world is set up to eliminate all kinds of awkward interactions. It's an introvert's paradise, really. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, we The meek will inherit the earth. We already have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we still need the human interaction. So uh, it's never going to disappear completely. No. And we, we crave it. We I do. think in the end, I yeah. think we crave the human interaction. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that people, uh, another thing about, about writing, I find interesting because people say like, oh, nobody's reading books anymore. But I think we're reading more than we ever have before. We absolutely have. In fact, book sales are up mm -hmm. uh, uh, tremendously. They're the uh, idea that people aren't reading books is a myth. They're probably not reading them all the way through, yeah. but they are reading them between ebooks and uh, physical books. The book sales are are tremendous, doing tremendously well, and uh, people are reading more than ever. What are they doing with their phones if they're not texting? They're reading something. Mm -hmm. So well, yeah, they're reading articles. They're reading. Uh, yeah, I, I would say the attention span is definitely shorter, but the amount of reading that people are doing yeah. is definitely less. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, here's a bit of a crazy question for you. Um, it sounds like science fiction because it was a big thing in science fiction in, uh, well, in the 80s and, and 70s, uh, 70s with the uh, Star Trek's uh, Universal Translator. And I don't know if you read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm -hmm. the Babelfish. Sure. Right. Well, there's a new technology called Babel, based on that name, mm -hmm. that is a universal translator. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think the effect of a universal translator is going to have on our languages? Well, if it's any good, and that's mm -hmm. always the issue because uh, translation is a very difficult thing. But if it's any good, it could be tremendously important for establishing uh, relationships with people all over the world. If we can speak and have ourselves understood no matter what language we're speaking, then the real barriers to communication start to fall, the barriers of language itself. Yeah, I think it could have an entirely structural change to everything. Yes. Because yeah. I think that... Um, as we talked before, with the, uh, the increase in literacy and what that did to destroy the class structure, I think that could happen even more completely if we don't have a, 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 a verbal barrier when talking to people, especially yes. when new people come to the country. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is, uh, for some, an, even a, a natural sort of, you know, well, they can't speak the language, so clearly they're not as educated possibly mm -hmm. as I am. Um, that. And, you know, their their grasp of uh, the English language may not have absolutely nothing to do with with their education absolutely. or their intelligence. Yeah. It's just not their first language. Yeah. If I went over to any country right now that didn't have English as a first language, I would be lost. Oh, yeah. Completely lost. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a second language. I feel kind of as a bad Canadian. I barely have a grasp of French. Everything I know of French came from Sesame Street. <laughs> but... Um, 
but I think that that would definitely be a huge world changer. But I wonder what, because one thing that you spoke about was how the, uh, the influx of meeting new people changed the language. Is that still happening? Or has that kind of come to a stop now, uh, even with the amount of immigration and migration that we have happening? Um, I don't see languages changing that much. Is it still happening? It still happens. And the amount of change varies, but within a particular subculture, for instance, you'll see a huge number of words from one language being introduced into another. Um, it's called code switching, when you've got someone who is uh, a native speaker of one language expressing themselves in another, and they mix the two languages together. So, for instance, I have students all the time who speak uh, Tagalog, Filipino students, mm -hmm. and I'll hear them talking with their friends, and I will be able to pick out words because they're throwing in lots and lots of English. Yeah. And when they speak to me, they make a conscious effort to speak English entirely, but sometimes some Tagalog words will come in. Well, if that happens within a larger community, those words from the other language will become part of the language. And if they're words that we need or that we uh, find useful, they will become part of English. It happens all the time, all over the world. I think we see it particularly in the United States right now in certain areas with a high Spanish population. Yeah, I was going to say Spanglish. Spanglish, is that word? Yeah. exactly, exactly. There's a lot of change in that. Yeah. Um, I was reading another guy the other day who was talking about just how much we love Mexican food and food being one of the ways that, you know, language gets changed. Yes, Yes. Know, All the words that have entered into the language in the last 20 years reflecting the, the broadened cuisine yeah. of Canadians. We didn't used to talk about kimchi and sushi. and well, yeah. uh, but you know, it's I didn't just, go, to go for sushi till I was probably 20-something. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we're talking about sushi and maki and mm -hmm. tekamaki, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. and those words... Um, but do those words become a part of our language, or is it just a part of our speech? Speech is language. Fair enough. And they they enter into the spoken language. They become part of the written language. When I was a girl, there was a strange word that we didn't use very often because we didn't eat it, and it was called pizza. <laughs> and it was pizza pie when it was used, and usually with kind of uh, invisible quotation marks about it because it was foreign. But now pizza this yeah. is english <laughs> yeah well absolutely fair enough yeah well a lot of italian cuisine definitely yes would yeah have easily been you know mm -hmm. spaghetti sure and not, not just uh, food words words that fill in a gap in english uh german schadenfreude for instance meaning the pleasure one feels at the failure of one's enemy <laughs> and it has become a in Eng uh, an accepted English word to the point where it's no longer usually written in italics or otherwise indicated yeah. as being German. What's that word? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Yeah. I have never used that one. Ah, well, it's a good one. You can introduce that into your vocabulary. Uh, Schadenfreude. 
I don't know if I want to do schadenfreude very often. <laughs> oh, we all do schadenfreude. <laughs> uh, we do, but I try to avoid that as something that I do. Yeah. Um, we did, I just did the trivia night out at the library the other day, and they were talking about a word. Um, what's his name? The guy who did Naked Lunch. Oh, William Burroughs. No, well, not Naked Lunch. Why am I thinking? Um, the cockroach. Oh, Kafka. Kafka, mm-hmm. Kafka-esque being a, uh-huh. a, a word that yep. becomes, yep. Uh, gets brought into the language. Sure. Yeah, I yeah. didn't get the question right. I was very upset when yeah. I heard what the answer was. I was like, Kafka-esque, that absolutely makes sense yeah. how an author's name would become sure. an English an yeah. English word. Yeah. Uh, is English one of the more flexible languages on the planet? And is that why it's grown so much? I think all languages have the, the possibility of flexibility. The reason English has grown so much has to do exclusively with political reasons. Yeah. It has been the language of the colonizers, the imperialists. It's traveled across the world and taken over the world to some extent because of the aggressions mm-hmm. of the various English-speaking countries. Yeah, There's nothing inherent about English that makes it superior or stronger or better able to survive. It's a matter of politics. Okay, fair enough. Um, so then how do we as a culture do better to foster keeping languages alive? Especially like what we do in this country when it comes to keeping Aboriginal languages alive. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important. I was uh, reading just the other day about how many languages disappear every week, and it's something like 80 languages worldwide, because there are so many languages, and their disappearance, uh, the disappearance of many languages is inevitable, mm-hmm. because they're, they've been spoken by a very small fragment of the population, and those people age out, die off, no one speaks the language anymore. But in the case of indigenous languages in Canada, uh, there are large enough language groups that they are making definite efforts to keep those languages alive. And one way that they do that is through education in the elementary schools Mm -hmm. and children's books. I've seen a number of children's books in the last few months that are bilingual. English Cree or English um, Ojibwa or uh, all sorts of of combinations so that children from an early age are exposed to the written form of the language and someone reading it out loud to them is giving them the spoken language as well. Yeah, because I think think, uh, Canada as a country at one point made a concerted effort to try to destroy these languages. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So I'm glad to hear that they're making an effort to uh, bring them back. Yeah, yeah, Uh, there's a a push for that. And that push comes from the Indigenous community. Absolutely. It's something that that can be done. Um, There was a really interesting revival of Welsh after World War II. Welsh was dying out mm-hmm. it, it's it was being overwhelmed by english and there were not very many native welsh speakers left and the welsh speakers who valued the language said this is a rich source of our literature and our history we need to preserve it and so there were definite 
efforts made on the part of the government and on the part of individuals to revive Welsh. It became a compulsory subject in school, and then it was compulsory and was solely the language of instruction up to about grade six. People started raising children as Welsh first language Mm. speakers, and now Welsh is a well-established, widespread language. It's become the... I don't know if it's the, considered the first language in Welsh in Wales now, but it's certainly spoken by a good portion of the population. Would you agree uh, that language is probably the most one of the most important pieces of maintaining a culture? I think it is. I think once the language goes, retaining the culture is very difficult, and people who feel that they have lost their cultural roots usually mention the loss of language loss first. Of language. Yeah. So how do we how do we find a balance with being able to communicate well with everybody yet allowing everybody to maintain their language that connects them to their culture? Yeah, and that's the real challenge because to go back to the Welsh example, you've got people who are first language Welsh speakers, but who can they speak to? Yeah. Other people in Wales. (laughs) If that is the only language they have, they're limited. I think our model for this has to be the European countries that have retained their first language and yet also teach other languages so well that the uh, speakers can travel back and forth, emigrate to North America, and get along perfectly well. It's not at all uncommon for someone from, say, Norway or mm-hmm. or Germany to speak five or six languages with Absolutely. a high degree of fluency. And I think that's the model that we have to take. But are several of those languages similar, though? They often are. Yeah, yeah they often are. Because um, I think that's partially what helps that to happen. Yes. Um, I think there might be a little bit of ignorance in there, too. Like it's easier to kind of go around the area that you are than to have people come in from whole other countries and try to understand theirs. So it's a little bit yeah. more work to try to yes. understand yeah. um, say an Asian language mm-hmm. or a, a South Asian language. Um, definitely, I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't read one to save my life, you yeah. know, like, yeah. um, it definitely requires a certain level of humility to mm-hmm. go, okay, yes. I have really no basis to go into this. Like, yeah. I mean, most of us could pick up a, a French textbook, not knowing much French and still be able to pick out three or four words. Sure. I couldn't pick up a, a manga comic book and pick out a single yeah. word with, yeah. or from the symbols at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think there needs to be an effort for what you speak of because I think that's a super important balance that we need to seek in that we want to be able to have an entire world that can can communicate with each other clearly and openly but we also want to make sure that we're maintaining cultures and heritage and history for each one of those areas so that each one of those people feels connected to it because I think that sometimes uh, that's what's happening to people is they're feeling disconnected from heritage, history, and culture. Yes, yes, um, that's very true. And I'll put in a plug here for Duolingo online. What's that? It's a free language program, an app that can be downloaded. You can upgrade to the cost version, but we've used the Duolingo free one now for several years, and you learn the language. You learn it at a fairly limited level, 
but daily practice, repetition, you get yeah. some, some exposure to another language. Well, I believe, and I mean, I don't have any sort of numbers with me, but I believe that knowing another language actually helps you when it comes to other forms of intelligence and use of intelligence as well, right? Yes, it does. It, it expands your, your sense of how language works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it's a different wing thing to imply, apply to your brain to try to switch the meaning of one, you know. Um, we apply one word to one item, but we also know that there's three or four, yes. ten that apply to it. Yeah. That's a, a totally different process for your brain. So learning another language, even though it might seem pointless at some points, if you've got English and you're like, well, I got, you know, whatever, 40% of the planet, I'm good, yeah. you know. Yeah. But no, knowing another language is actually going to help you and probably help you in the long run in being able to learn all sorts of other languages. Yes, it does. And you see the connections amongst the, the languages, the origin of words, and uh, it's it's just... Uh, exciting for the the brain to learn things yeah, yeah. yeah. well i think yeah ultimately um lifelong education is super important as well yeah. uh here's one thing though i want to ask you do you think just in this one area the english language has lost uh a little bit uh in romance i think of letters from the uh, from, like we always talk of the like letters that the soldiers used to write their wives during the world wars and they were long and beautiful letters. Mm -hmm. I think one comedian had a joke about that. And now it's like, dear Martha, I love you. And I miss watching television with you, <laughs> you know, whereas before it was like, dear Martha, uh, I, I miss the shimmering sunshine in your eyes that I used to see in the morning light, you know? Yes. So yes. Have we lost a little bit of that? Well, it has certainly changed. It, it would be, uh, the rare person who got even the dear Martha, I wish uh, we could watch television together because now it's text messages. Yeah. And that is, I think, going to be a loss for historians in the future or even family history that so much is not in a permanent form, mm -hmm. that the box of letters in the attic is not going to be there. Even the first drafts of novels aren't going to be there. They're all electronic and those electronic sources deteriorate, disappear. Yeah. Well, even we're not even saving them. We'll no. do a first draft and then we'll edit it and we'll edit it and we'll That's edit it. That's right. And that first, you know, piece that just came as a mental flow is deleted under yeah. editor and Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. I, I, I would I would be scared to be a historian 300 years from now to try to wade through the amount of information that we'd have and piece together, or a thousand years from now, and piece together what life was like. <laughs> it could be a challenge. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully we ha uh, hopefully they have uh, digital access to that because yeah. if we ever have a period where all of the uh, digital parts are, are lost or gone, we yeah. are going to, I think something's going to be missing if they, all they have is... I mean, we do have a fair amount of, of good writing that happens, though, now, too. Um, but it'll be an interesting sort of layout to yes. see what what people a thousand years ago would look back at our, this time and, and see. Um, and you're right that we don't... We, we now, I, I think there was like a moment where we felt like we had to save everything and show everything. And now people have become more afraid of that. Like, yes. There was like a generation before, like my generation got really excited by social media 
and put pictures up of everything mm-hmm. that was going on. Yeah. Everything to everyone. It yes. was like, here's me and my kids. Here's me and my dog. Here's me on vacation. Here's, yeah. you know, and then it's got to the point where we just got tired of seeing everybody do everything. Yeah. And then the next, the kids came along and went, hold on here. I don't want people to see what I was doing as 15 years old yeah. or as a student when I'm 35 and in a, a professional job. So yeah. we've created things like Snapchat. We have messengers that delete our messages now. Yeah. I, I use the Snapchat all the time and then I forget which message I sent three minutes earlier and I got to yeah. ask my friend, like, what did I say before? <laughs> what question was I answering? Um, so there definitely has been a loss of permanency. Yeah. And there's just also, I think, too, so much to consume. Yes. There's so much to consume yeah. now that so much less actually makes a real impact. That's very true. We are bombarded with information through all channels, podcasts, radio, television, videos, uh, you name it, all sorts of social media platforms. It's, I was a Victorian specialist when yeah. I did my English de- graduate work. And sometimes I long for the days when all there was was a book. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, we reach so many more people now, and uh, the uh, information has become accessible to so many more that you can't really regret it either. No, and it all comes down to, and I think that we'll find it. I, I used to say to some people, I think, I think technology moved past moved faster and has been moving faster than society can catch up yes so i think we'll find and i i do find it too like if i go to a movie i always think it's going to be the kids that are going to be on the cell phones Mm -hmm. and it's not yeah it's people my age Mm -hmm. or older who Mm -hmm. are still on their cell phones and i'm going why are you guys opening your cell phones because i think the kids have a better etiquette on it than we do now because they grew up in it there was no sort of magic to it that there was for me when I was like 21 or if you mm-hmm. if it came to you when you were 16 and all of a sudden you can have a cell phone that sent videos and pictures and stuff there was a sort of awe to it and now if you're doing it since you're literally two years old yeah. you're just like all right yeah that's the thing that we do it's yeah. the thing that we do I can, it's hard for me to even remember uh using a rotary phone yes <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we got call display and I think that's the last time my parents talked to a stranger like, yeah. I think that was it. Oh, I don't know exactly. that number. I'm not answering that one. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right? So um, I think that we're, I think, I think it's moving super quickly, but I think we're going to get to a better, better spot and we're going to see um, the value. Like, I find that now too. And I, even when I talk to my brother, who's 10 years younger than I am, he doesn't keep a lot of things. Mm-hmm. He keeps only those things that are most important. Yeah. So yeah. he has a he has a his wedding album for sure, but he doesn't have an entire shelf of books because mm-hmm. he knows that he reads the book, he puts the information away, he gets yeah. rid of the book. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. all about the information for her. The book is just the vessel for getting it yes. getting it there. Yeah. Um so I don't think it's as bad as I sometimes worry. Because I think he, st- he I see him and his wife and they still keep the most important things. Yeah. The, the photo albums, the wedding albums and that stuff. But everything else seems very disposable to mm-hmm. him. Uh, and I think when it comes to literature and music, because I deal in music so much, um, there's still a kind of a golden age that people look at. Like people want to buy a copy of Pride and Prejudice more yes. than they want to buy 10 books that were written in the last year. Yeah, They'll just read those, throw those away. Yeah. 
there is a sort of rock star era to Pride and Prejudice and Shakespeare yes. and those types of books. I think it's kind of funny in that sense. The same with music in that there's like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even a lot of the 80s where the music is just like the number one selling vinyls over the last couple of years. Uh, the top 10, eight of them have came out in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. Still selling tons of records. Beatles, Rolling Stones, yeah. Queen, those guys. Still yeah. selling tons of records. Even the young people want a physical copy of that music yeah. because yeah. the physical copy is connected to that time. Mm -hmm. And now, though, stuff that's created now kind of gets disposable. So mm -hmm. when you speak of what might get lost, I'm worried it'll be from this time. Yeah, I think cream always rises to the top, though. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. when you speak of... Pride and Prejudice, Shakespeare, the Beatles, you're talking about the best of the era. Mm -hmm. And so much else from that era was chaff that has blown away. I think it will be the same with our time. I'm not sure what they will be, but the best music and the best writing from 2019 will still be valued in 2119. Yeah. Is, that, is that something we don't think about? That maybe this is, I'm not thinking about this. Was there a lot other writing that we just don't see from those past centuries? There was you so know? much. I took a course one time on the plays from the time of Shakespeare that weren't Shakespeare. Yeah. And it was amazing how terrible they were. Oh, really? <laughs> there were lots of plays going on. Plays were being produced on stage usually three times a day, six days a week. So there was a huge demand. That's why Shakespeare was so prolific. But he had lots of rivals. Lots of other people were writing plays. And they were just not very good. Not very good. <laughs> well, we, I mean, theater at that time would have been the only thing you had. That was, yes. So you had television quality theater sure. and movie quality theater and Absol art film quality theater absolutely right? and, absolutely know. just as there are so many movies made now so many uh, reality television reality television yeah yeah which is not reality at all yeah. uh, most of it's not even on television anymore <laughs> but um yeah i think that's also something that we forget too mm -hmm. is that we really keep a hold of the best of the best yes Yes. And we can kind of, it's easy to idolize a time. I mean, when we talk language, it's easy to, t to idolize a time that we weren't in because all that we have left of it is the best of the best. Very true. The art yeah. that we have from there is the best of the best. Yeah. If yeah. you had some bad artist that hung in your house back in the day, yeah. you just didn't care. Right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's gone. It's gone in the winds of time. It, it yeah. went in a garage sale. Yes. Right. Yeah. The artists that stand the test of time yeah. are the best of the best. Yeah. And what we're viewing from those eras and the further we get away from them, the more the best of the best is what's going to get left. Yes. Um, you know, and, and it's the same with language. We look back to the, the, those writings. We're looking at the best of the best. And yeah. as, you, as you said earlier, to kind of put a point on all of this, is the average person was not speaking in, in, in the same way that Shakespeare was speaking. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, like, um, although I think a lot of, I, if I remember my Shakespeare at all correctly, um, he did try to write towards the average person. Well, he was writing for the the stage, and he had uh, people who were attending everywhere from the illiterate peasants to the king. And to the king. So yeah. he had a broad range within the plays, yeah. and there's something for everyone in them, which I think is one reason why Shakespeare has lasted. Even yeah. now, there's something for everyone. Yeah. 
you know, romance, murder, all of it. All of it's there. Yeah, it's all in Shakespeare. <laughs> but uh, all right. Um, yeah, usually just to wrap everything up, I do a thing called read, watch, and listen. So it's just one thing that you think everybody should read, something you think they should watch, something they should listen to. And it can literally be anything. It doesn't even have to be on the topic, just something you think that's incredible. So let's start with read. Oh, so much good to read. Book I read this past weekend. What was that? Susan Orlean's The Library Book. It's brand new. It came out in 2019. Susan Orlean is an American nonfiction writer. And in The Library Book, she looks at a devastating library fire that occurred in Los Angeles in 1986. But she uses this as the jumping off point to talk about libraries and their impact on the world and their development in the United States and their surprising continuation and even revival in the 21st century. I'm a huge fan of libraries, yeah. and this book is beautifully written. Susan Orlean is a, a wonderful writer, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. Yeah, I think sometimes people forget just how much the library offers. It does. The library has done an incredible job of being able to offer access to everything. Yes. From music uh, to audio books to comic books. I was, yep. in there, I was in ours here in town and yep. looking. I was like, oh, they've got tons of graphic novels They here. do. And one of their librarians has been good enough to come to talk to my classes about graphic novels. Because surprisingly, young people aren't all as familiar with them as I think they should be. Oh, I love a, I love a graphic novel. I love a, a well-done uh, graphic novel because it's got pictures, and I have a hard time focusing sometimes. Yeah, pictures <laughs> speak to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and watch. Watch. Oh, boy. Our current obsession is uh, Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent on Netflix. A little touch of Italian history and uh, uh, Renaissance intrigue there. So it's... Mm. Lots of fun. And listen. Listen, I'm not as current with music. I talk to my colleagues around here and they tell me all about punk rock and whatever they're into. But my own listening preference is is classical. And just last night, I went to a tremendous concert here at Keanu College of Avon Yu, who is at the moment considered to be one of Canada's best classical pianists. He was uh, amazing. Hmm. And he's only 31 years old, so we'll be hearing a great deal more from him. Perfect. Well, that's everything, Jane, I think. I think we could talk for much longer, but uh, I won't keep you anymore. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, thanks for making us smarter, I think. I think it was great. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. It was a pleasure.